This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Father Brett Kroll. So we are in a three-week series on money and giving in the church. Last week we talked about the heart of giving, the spirit of generosity. We said more than anything else, it's about trust. Do we trust our Father in heaven that if we take care of others, He will take care of us? This week we're going to be a little bit more practical, so I hope to spend uh, more of our time in application. How do we handle our money wisely as Christians? Last week, we talked about the spiritual message that we send whenever we give. Uh, Several messages, actually, and the first two are to God. When we give, we say, I honor you. All wealth belongs to you to begin with. I'm just a steward. And so when I give, I'm I'm acknowledging that fact that you, you own everything. The second message we send is, and I trust you. The other message that we send is not to God, but to money itself. We say to money, you do not control me. Every time we give, we're saying, I actually control you. I do not serve you, you serve me. And of course, I serve God, and my bank account shows it. So now that we've established that the Christian is in control of money and not the other way around, we ask the question, so what do we do with money? How do we handle it? What is the wise way of using our money. And first we have to clear up a question because some of you might be saying, well, doesn't the Bible say that money is evil? The root of all evil. That's a misquote. What Paul actually says is the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So in fact, money itself is is not intrinsically good or bad. Money is powerful. It's a powerful tool. And like anything else that's powerful, it can be used for good or for ill. So if you're digging in your backyard and you've got your spade, you're digging in your flower bed and and something goes wrong, you, you might have a slight hand injury. If somebody is operating a crane, or like a bulldozer, or a large machinery, you can do a lot more with that because it's more powerful, but if it's misused, mishandled, or something goes wrong, the damage is far more extensive. So the question we're asking this morning, or or the point is, since money is a powerful tool, how do we wield it skillfully, wisely, in accordance not with the wisdom of the world, but with the wisdom of God? This is what Jesus is talking about in our gospel passage today. So if you turn to Luke 16, and I'm going to start reading at verse 9. So Jesus says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, could also be translated by mammon. Use money to make friends for yourself so that when money runs out, when it fails, your friends will receive you into eternal dwellings. Bump over to verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. You'll hate the one and love the other, be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Then the Pharisees were there. They loved money, so they ridiculed him. And he says to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows what's up. What is exalted in the sight of men is an abomination to God. And he's saying that in the context of teaching about money. All right, well, this parable probably ranks number one on many people's list of all time most confusing things that Jesus ever said. (laughs) We've got... Uh, a rich owner, and we've got a manager. The manager's doing a poor job, so he finds out that he's going to lose his job. But before that happens, when he still is in control of the master's accounts, he quickly goes and he says, uh, reduce your bill, reduce your bill. Don't pay back what you really owe. 
He's doing that so that when he does lose his job, he can go to those people and say, hey, remember when I did you that favor? Now will you help me out? Welcome me into your house. And, and we, we read that, and, and he's, he's commended, and, and for whatever reason, I always imagine a Brooklyn accent, you know? Even though I'm a little miffed about the money that I lost, I got to hand it to you. You got guts, kid. That was moxie. <laughs> what he's saying is, I'm, I'm less upset about the money I've lost. I'm more impressed by your shrewdness. Shrewd means street smarts, your cunning, your wisdom. And Jesus is saying, be dishonest in the way you use your money. No, of course he's not. Because even just a few verses later, he says, don't do that. And there's enough verses around the rest of the Bible that we don't, I, I don't need to tell you that Jesus is not saying to be dishonest, right? So what is he saying? The point of this parable, Jesus is saying, if the people of this world use money in unrighteous ways to make friends, to help them out in earthly dwellings, how much more should you use money in a righteous way to make friends for yourself who will welcome you into eternal dwellings? That's what Jesus is saying. It's about what is money for? It's a tool. It's a powerful tool. But part of what this is reminding us is that it's a temporary tool. There's no money in the life of the world to come. Several years ago, there were bumper stickers that would say, he who dies with the most toys wins. Meaning, I suppose, cars and boats and jet airplanes, whatever. Then several years later, or sometime later, there was another bumper sticker that said, he who dies with the most toys still dies. And there's basically an entire book of the Bible called Ecclesiastes written to prove that singular point. It's well worth the read. So if money is temporary, it's only for this life, then even though it is powerful, that puts everything in perspective, doesn't it? And Jesus is saying, so use the power of money in this life here and now to prepare for the life to come. Make friends for yourselves who will welcome you into eternal dwellings. Okay, well, that clears some things up. He's not telling us to be dishonest, but what does he mean by make friends for yourself to welcome you into eternal dwellings? Well, we never read any story in the gospel alone by itself. We always look at what came before it, what comes after. And if you look down to verse 19, just a few verses later in the same chapter, Jesus tells another story. This time it's about a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. The rich man goes in and out every day, and at his gate sits a poor man who's so poor that he doesn't even have the strength to fend off the dogs who come and lick his sores. The rich man passes him by every single day and doesn't so much as give him scraps from his table, let alone bring him into his house, wash him up, and set him at his table to have a meal. He does nothing for him. Both the rich man and the poor man die, and the rich man goes to a place of torment, and the poor man goes to a place of comfort called Abraham's side. And then there's this dialogue exchange where the rich man says, Lazarus, can you help me out? I'm in torment. Actually, he's appealing to Abraham. Can you help me out? I'm in torment. And Abraham says, you had your good things in life while Lazarus had his bad. Now the roles are reversed. And he's basically saying, you did nothing to help Lazarus out when you could have. Now there's nothing he can do to help you out. To make it even more clear, a few chapters prior to this, Jesus is teaching, 
And he's talking about when you throw a party, when you give a banquet, don't just invite your friends and, and your family and important people who will then invite you back and do favors for you. Instead, he says, when you throw a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you in this life. But you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So Jesus is saying, make friends with the poor now, and you'll be rewarded when it comes to the eternal dwellings time. Even earlier in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus said, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom. Matthew's Gospel, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. In Luke, it's just blessed are the poor. They own heaven. Make friends with them so that when it comes time to decide where do you go, where will you spend eternity, you will have them to recognize you and say, ah, I know you. You helped me when I was in need. Come in to my eternal dwelling." Now, this unsettles us, and it upsets us for many reasons. Uh, I'm going to deal just with the theological reasons for right now. Because you're thinking, I-, I thought Jesus owned heaven, and I thought it was ultimately Jesus who decides who goes in and out. Well, yes, that's true. But remember that in Matthew 25, another scene where it's a judgment scene, it's the sheep and the goats, and the sheep represent the righteous, and to them Jesus says, you're blessed Because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. You took care of me when I was in need. And the righteous say, when when did we ever see you in need? And you remember that Jesus says, whenever you took care of a poor person who was hungry, thirsty, naked, a stranger, in prison, or sick, you were actually doing that to me. That was me. When you were making friends with the poor, you were actually making friends with me. Jesus said. So between Matthew 25 and what we're hearing in in Luke, now all of these come together, and we realize that when we give and we're generous, especially to the poor, we're making friends not only with the poor, who Jesus did say, in a way, they, they own the kingdom of heaven, but we're actually making friends with Jesus himself, who along with the poor will recognize us and say, I know you. You helped me when I was in need. Now you are welcome here into eternal dwellings. So money is a powerful tool. We must wield it skillfully. Jesus is saying, learn how to use money now in this life in a way to prepare for the life to come. So the question we're asking this morning is, how do we handle money wisely in a way that pleases God? And we're going to speak first to how do we do this as individual Christians? And then we're going to talk about how does the church corporately and then even specifically, how does resurrection do this? So how do we handle money wisely as individuals? Well, much could be said about this, and of course we don't have time to say it all, but twice a year we run something called Financial Peace University. The next time we're running it is in mid-January. It's an eight or nine week course designed to answer exactly that question. How do I get out of debt? How do I make a budget? How do I take what is given to me each month and do something wise with it? How do I be careful? How how do I be a wise steward? It's a resource that was developed by a man named Dave Ramsey. He also has books, Financial Peace and Total Money Makeover. So again, we're not going to get into all the details of what it means to handle money wisely, but this morning, as individuals, we're going to focus on, on one supreme value. After giving, which is the supreme value, after that, after generosity, 
is the value of living simply. Thinking about our spending, taking stock of our budget, and asking the question, how can I simplify my expenses so that I can be more generous? While so much feels out of our control, I don't control my salary, I don't control all these other, I don't control the cost of living, I don't control, I don't, I don't have control. While that may be the case, the question we have to ask is, where do I have control? Where do I have a say, and what am I doing when it comes time to expenses? So I said this last week, and I believe it's true, I don't think at resurrection we have a greed issue. I know many of you, and I don't know anybody who is on the race to amass incredible amounts of wealth. Many of you, if you're not on a church staff or, or in a ministry, a parachurch ministry, many of you have, have chosen professions not for the salary that you take home because of the meaning that it has, your desire to contribute to society in that way. So I, I don't think we have a greed issue on the whole here at Resurrection. But I do believe that all of us, including myself, can be challenged to ask the question, how can I simplify my lifestyle so that I can become even more generous? How can I tighten the belt? How can I forego some of these temporary things so that I'm laying up for myself treasures that will not fade away in the life to come? And probably the most important thing in living simply is living within our means or even below our means. Living within our means simply means whatever comes in each month, we try to make that a little bit more than what goes out each month. If we don't have the money to buy something, we don't buy it. We're careful with our expenses. And this then changes our lifestyle. As, as Christians, whether anybody on the outside would be able to see it or not, because there, there are so many variables in, in our different lives that there's no formula here. But on the whole, there should be a way in which we as Christians have a different lifestyle. It should be somewhat more simple than that of those around us. And this affects housing, cars, food, clothes, and media and entertainment. So with housing, when you're thinking about where are we going to rent, or what kind of home are we going to buy, you're asking the question, can we afford this? Can we make the monthly payments or not? And if the answer is no, you don't buy it. I know last week I talked a lot about trust and trusting in God for our needs, but we don't put God in a, in a position where he has to, that's not the kind of testing that the Bible talks about when it says test God with money and he'll come through with you. That's actually in the context of generosity. Give more than you think is safe, and he will come through with you. It's not saying, buy a bigger house than you can really afford. That's the American dream saying that. And what we would say as Christians is, unless there's really clear conviction, and other voices are nodding their heads and saying, yes, God is calling you into a faith gap, unless that's the case, you don't buy a house. If, you don't, if you're not reasonably sure you can make those monthly payments. With a car, do you drive the nice car or the nicer car? Well, if it's a nice car and it works good and, and will serve you for, for many years to come, go with the nice car, not the nicer car. With food, 
As Americans, our budget can be trimmed probably in this category more than almost anywhere else. What we spend on food. So it's worth asking, what is my lifestyle around eating out? How many times a week are we eating out? How many times am I ordering lunch rather than bringing leftovers from home? We can simplify the way we do food. Not to mention that two of the most delicious words in the English language are rice and beans. Or maybe it's three words. I don't know if you count the and or not. But there's a, there's a way to do food that is simple, being a good steward. And it's not just ramen noodles. Rice and beans is tasty. Rice and beans are tasty. That should be plural. So many. Okay. With clothes. How often are you buying clothes? Do you buy clothes every year when the fashions change? Or do you buy clothes when your old clothes wear out? And are you okay buying used clothes, or do they have to be new? With media and entertainment, this category, more than any of the other categories, is the culprit for us getting confused on what our needs and our wants are. We think we need something, and if we take a step back and just ask a pretty logical question, will I die if I don't have this, then there are many things that we're saying, I need this, and the reality is you do not. You don't need Netflix. You won't die if you kill it. And there are many of you who need to do that for a number of reasons. Uh, one year, several years ago, when we had a cap capital campaign going, I think it was to buy the, the Wagner property, Julie and I were in our early 20s, and a leader was challenging us to give up something uh, that was a you know, not a necessity, for two years, don't buy that thing, and then that money give towards this campaign. So we, we talked it through, and we said, well, we love books, and we love music. So for two years, we're not going to buy a book. We'll ask for them for, for Christmas or for birthday, but we're not going to buy any books. We're not going to buy any CDs. For those of you born in this century, a CD is a flat, uh, round, shiny disc that you put into a CD player. And it, so we did that, and we didn't die. We're still here. And it was a good lesson. Uh, and, and God showed up in some neat ways. It's a small thing, right? Can you say that God is honored with every purchase, every dollar you spend? Or is it time to rethink your spending? Now, as we're talking about living simply, I want to qualify it a little bit. Living simply doesn't mean let's be sloppy or let's be shabby, or even Spartan in our lifestyle. Paul writes in 1 Timothy, he says, don't set your heart on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Isn't that beautiful? God is a Father who gives us good gifts to enjoy. I don't think he wants us to pursue luxury. In a world where people are, are starving, and as you'll hear from Catherine, where, where medical needs you just don't have the money or the resources to buy. In a world where people are, are starving, I don't think we can justify pursuing luxury. But we can enjoy basic, simple pleasures. Earlier in, in Timothy, right, Paul is writing and he says, everything that God created is good and to be received with thanksgiving, not to be rejected. So let's be balanced here in, in what we say. Living simply doesn't mean being Spartan. And in another place, Paul's writing to the Corinthians, and he's encouraging them to give because there's another church in the world that is suffering a famine. But he says, I'm not asking you to be hard-pressed while they have it easy. What I'm aiming for is equality and fairness. 
that we all would have our basic needs. Similarly, living simply does not mean always buying the cheapest option. So if you've got an option between a bookshelf that comes from Ikea and maybe a, a bookshelf that was reclaimed old barn wood, it was handmade, you can go with the barn wood. Why? Well, for one, it's going to last longer, so it's higher quality, so you're actually being a good steward by buying the thing that's going to last longer than the Ikea bookshelf. But for a second reason, is that beauty matters. Beauty matters. And when part of what money is for is to create the kind of home environment where other people can come in and taste even a little bit of the kingdom of God. So hospitality actually counts as generosity. So let's be balanced in what we mean by living simply. But let's also ask the question, how could I, how could we simplify our lifestyle so that we can be more generous? As individuals, skillfully wielding the powerful tool of money means living simply so we can do just that. All right, let's talk about the church for a little bit. How does the church handle money traditionally and then even here at Resurrection? Well, basically, the church receives money and then it, it uses it in two ways, and roughly equal, 50-50. About 50% goes to the ministry, the work of the church. The other half goes to the ministers, the workers of the church. And you see this example throughout the New Testament. So, uh, again, back to Timothy. For whatever reason, 1 Timothy is a place where Paul writes a lot about money. But in chapter 5, you see both of these examples right next to each other. So Paul's writing to Timothy, who's a pastor, and he's saying, take care of the widows who are truly widows, those who have no one else to take care of them because, of course, they didn't have social security or, or other supports. Those widows who rely solely on the generosity of the church and the people of God, take care of them, Paul is saying. And that was what the ministry meant. And, and we see in the book of Acts several places where people are coming and selling fields and giving their money to the apostles. The apostles are taking them and distributing to those who have need. And that's the ministry of the church. But then right after Paul is saying to Timothy, take care of those widows who are truly widows, then right after that, he says, and take care of your elders. Take care of your pastors. And in this famous verse, <clears throat> do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. And we love that verse, don't we, in the 21st century western suburbs of Chicago? Because we look at that and we say, nailed it, got it. I'm not muzzling my ox, are you? Nope, no ox muzzling here. This is a, an ox muzzle free zone. So we feel really good about that verse. Actually, what he's saying is, pay your pastors. In the same way that the ox eats the grain that falls on the ground as it's going around the treadmill, and, and only a stingy farmer would muzzle the ox, so too pay the workers who work in the ministry. He quotes that same verse over in 1 Corinthians, and he draws the analogy to the temple service. So in the Old Testament, the Levites were those who did the work of the temple, and all Israel was supposed to bring their tithes to the Levites. But the Levites were also commanded to tithe. They also were supposed to take what was given to them from Israel and give 10% to the temple, which is why last week when I shared what Julie and I do with our, our, uh, our giving, or the foundation of our giving and our entire financial budget is to tithe, 
I share that not to brag or to boast, but to simply say, we do this too. Because I think it's important for you to know that. And I'm not asking you to do anything that we are not already doing. But Paul's tying this in to the precedent set in the Old Testament, and he's saying, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So along with part of the money going to the ministry and the work of the church, the other half goes to the ministers and the workers of the church. Now, on the other side of the same coin, the New Testament is full of very stern warnings against those who would get into the work of ministry as a means for financial gain. And in fact, again, in the same letter, 1 Timothy, if you want to go read 1 Timothy 5 and 6, it has a lot to say about money. In the next chapter, Paul says this. He's warning Timothy about false teachers, those who think that godliness and being involved in, in the ministry and in the teaching is a means to financial gain. They are conceited and they understand nothing. So this and many other warnings are there that preaching the gospel and doing the ministry is not a means to accumulate wealth. It is not a way to get rich because the temptation for abuse has always been there and always will be. So what that brings to us then is a kind of balance when it comes to paying the ministers where they should have a fair wage, be able to meet their daily needs and, and have a reasonable income. But they should not be accumulating wealth. And no one getting into ministry should expect to be rich. And I think that's right, and I think it's good, and obviously I, I think it's biblical. Now, in our context here today, 2,000 years later, it's not quite so simple when it comes to the ministry that the church is doing. Okay? In the New Testament, it seems like, by and large, that ministry was supporting the orphans and the widow and those who were poor. Since that time, church life has developed and what it means to do ministry has developed. Also, society has developed, so we do have things like social security. So that means that how we spend the 50% that is the ministry, it looks a little different now than it did then. So here's just some of the main places where that half of the pie goes, at least here at Resurrection. Facility, maintenance, upkeep, all the things that you need. If you're a homeowner, you know all about that. Ministry programs. So we use money to support the ministries of res kids, res youth, res groups, all the different ministries that we have, supporting them, resourcing them, as well as supporting our lay leaders who are crucial to all of those ministries happening. We send money to missionaries who bring both spiritual and material goods to the world in their context where we send them. So think of Gregory and Heidi Whitaker, our missionaries in Cambodia, who Gregory's a priest leading a church. Heidi is a medical doctor. We also give money to the national church, the ACNA. We also give money as a church to our church plants and to future church plants and to other churches in the diocese. So as a church, we practice that tithe principle of giving beyond ourselves. And even though we don't give 50% of the ministry budget to those who are poor and needy, there is still a portion of our budget that goes to alleviate those who are in financial crisis right here in our congregation, whether it's helping out with a few months of rent or helping them out with transportation needs or food needs or whatever. It's maybe important for you to know that anyone any of you can see the details of how every dollar is spent. Every year we have an annual meeting where we discuss the budget. We're super transparent. 
And if you want even more detail, you can go to Ann Kessler, who is our business manager, and ask to even see what is every line item. The only thing that, that is not disclosed is the specific salary of, of the different staff members. But that is known by the vestry, which is our non-staff, lay-led, uh, basically financial board. They keep financial accountability. So the vestry does know what every person on staff makes. They approve it. They set it. The vestry is nominated by you, the congregation, and ultimately voted on by you. So this and many other ways, there are systems of control, checks and balances, so that we know that every dollar is accountable for, we know how the money is being spent. Because if we're asking you to give to the church, it's right that you should be able to trust what we're doing with your money, which is not to say that we're doing it perfectly, and I invite your prayers to help us as a church and as a staff become even more and more godly and wise in the way we spend our money, even more and more mission-oriented. Finally, the last thing I want to conclude with, it does not escape me, and, and I often think of this, that I personally and my family live by your generosity. I don't forget that. And there is an honor that comes from being a staff member at Resurrection. There, there is a joy in being in full-time ministry. There's an honor in being a priest. And I, I don't pretend that there isn't an honor there. I acknowledge there is. Which is why I actually think it's right and it's good that with that honor comes a certain dependence. I need you. My family needs you. Our staff depend on you. We need you. And, and by the way, uh, we don't work by commission, no bonuses. So if you walk away from this and uh, you write a million-dollar check, man, those were great sermons on money. And you write a million-dollar check, that's not going to come to me in any way, shape, or form. My salary is set. The vestry sets it and approves it. We live by the generosity of others. And I wish I could say this more, but let me say it now. Thank you. And on behalf of all the staff, thank you for your generosity. We know what it means to us. So we found today that money is not intrinsically evil. It is a powerful tool that can be used for good or for ill. And our goal as individuals and as a church is to use every dollar that God gives us in a way that pleases Him. May God give us grace so to do. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.